This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is February 2nd, 2023. It's Groundhog Day. I'm Scott Delunderboom. And I'm in Bushfield. I don't even know what Balzac Billy said about this winter. I'm hoping uh, spring comes early because I want to do a road trip to Calgary in March for spring break. And it would be great if that was doable safely. And is that the uh, name of the, the local groundhog where you hail from? Yeah, Balzac Billy, where I grew up. We have two groundhogs in Canada, Punxsutawney Phil and uh, Balzac Billy. Huh. Punxsutawney is the U.S. one, isn't he? Wyerton, yeah. Wyerton Willies. Who well, that's I'm the one of. from that's uh, from Groundhog Day, yeah. the movie, and musical now produced by Tim Minchin. I just saw that. That's a thing. We're not talking about Groundhog Day today. We're talking about D Day, the decriminalization or drug free. They're not, they're not free, but you can carry them without being arrested now in BC as of a couple of days ago. And we're going to look at Abacus's latest polling data nationally. And we got a half dozen, not even, it's just three stories in our quick takes, but they'll probably be long takes. Lots to talk about today. News is starting again. We're so happy. But we need your help, dear listeners. We're looking to the future of the show, particularly as the parliament and legislature start to spin up and we see a lot more happening. We want to have more guests on. Uh, both of us will have uh, reasons we'll not be able to be on the podcast from time to time. Me parenting, you work. Maybe I'll have work issues in the future, but I'm on leave for now. If you have people who you think would fit with the vibe of the show or who'd be great to hear from, let us know either in the patron slack or email us at podcast at I don't check the Twitter anymore. We're still there. Um, get at us and tell us who we should have on the show in the future, or else it's going to be Stuart again. No offense. We love Stuart, but we want to have a little more diversity. And of course, uh, go support the show at patreon.com slash politicoast. We'll throw you in the Slack channel, and you can make more suggestions there too. Let's start here in BC, where drugs are now legal, kind of, not really, but you won't get arrested if you have a small amount. You'll just get, I guess you'll still get harassed by the police, but they won't arrest you for a small amount. It's it's messy, but we have kind of broken history in many ways. As of a few days ago, January 31st was the beginning of the three-year decriminalization pilot project that was approved way back in May 31st, 2022, nine months of waiting for this. And now you can possess up to two and a half grams of cocaine, cracker powder, methamphetamine, MDMA, or opioids, which includes heroin, fentanyl, or morphine. So you can walk around with all of that. You cannot walk around with benzodiazepines, um, but the rest of the hard drugs, you can have two and a half grams of on your person. This followed the province originally asking for four and a half grams. Uh, The city of Vancouver had asked just prior to that, and I forget what they had asked for in terms of limits. I think it was slightly less than the province. A lot of negotiations went back and forth between the province and the Health Canada uh, and other stakeholders. The federal government ultimately only approved two and a half grams because they said the police wanted it to be lower like that initially and that frustrate a lot. The challenge here uh, in particular is that trafficking and sales are still illegal. So you can have drugs, but if you sell them, you're breaking the law and they will still prosecute you for that. Which is pretty standard for decriminalization. Yeah, it just... It's not legalization. No, it is not. Um, And it's definitely kind of a first trial. I guess the challenge now is Buying is still risky. Getting getting drugs is still dangerous. And if the limit is low, that requires you to go do that risky thing more. But 
I guess we're going to learn a lot in the next weeks, months, and years. Uh, it is also still illegal to possess drugs at schools, childcare facilities, and airports. Fair enough. I mean, don't need meth at my kids' daycare, I guess. I mean, having yeah, lots of having had sick kids at home all week, maybe I could do some hard time. I'm not <laughs> mostly joking. Yeah, and uh, last time I was at the airport, they definitely had big signs all over the place still warning about uh, marijuana being uh, illegal to fly with to the States and whatnot. So it does not surprise me that that has not changed at airports. The, the terrifying else. thing I saw on a Transport Canada website recently is like, you are allowed to fly with cannabis within Canada because you are allowed to have cannabis on both ends. It's legal, so you can carry it on a plane. But your plane is always at risk of being diverted for emergency reasons to an American airport. And if you land there and you have cannabis on you, it says the uh, local um, consular services will try to help you, but just be warned, cannabis is still illegal in the States. And so you could get in trouble even though you weren't actively trying to do anything illegal. I don't think that's ever come up, thankfully. But with probably not with the it's pretty rare for an airplane to get diverted these days, and especially to the states from a Canadian flight path. Um, in terms of enforcement, the BC government has said that they are not discouraging police from interacting with people who look like they're carrying jug drugs, but they have been trained with pictures of what two and a half grams of these various substances look like. Uh, they won't be sending drugs off to scanners. They have just been told to basically trust if, you know, they walk up to someone and say, hey, what's that you're carrying? They go, oh, it's Coke. Uh, they go, okay, that looks like 2.4 grams of Coke. And I guess if it looks like 2.6, they can seize it. Um, but in either case, the police have been instructed to hand out information on health and social services, little flyers about uh, recovery options, which like... I understand the impetus for there, but it still encourages police to have interactions with drug users, which most drug users who advocated for this, the point of this system was to decrease interactions with police so that they could live lives and not be uh, under perpetual fear. But if you're still, you know, happy to have those interactions, it it doesn't have the full effect, I don't think, that they're going for. Well, I think the intent was a little more, uh, a little less just on the police side and more on the justice system side. Like, none of this stuff then funnels into that. Yeah, and that's promising. Um, and that would be the big thing to watch. Like, it's, it is a very big deal, and it's a very big change in policy, so it'll be something to really watch over the coming years. Uh, we just had the coroner's report for 2022 on drug overdoses come out with the final numbers that 2,272 people died of toxic drug overdoses in 2022. The good news is that's less than 2021, just 34 people less, and there's likely to be a few more numbers added to that or a few more lives added to that as coroner investigations are completed and final causes of death are established, but maybe we plateaued the raging death numbers from the pe the overdose pandemic, overdose crisis. Um, the court, there's a lot of interesting numbers in the coroner's report. They say that 319 deaths were in the downtown east side. That was like the largest singular region or local region. But that only represented 14% of deaths total. So people are dying of toxic drug overdoses in every corner of the province. Um, there was, I think, there was one reported death at an overdose prevention site they mentioned in 2022. And I think that may have been one of the first deaths at overdose prevention sites. Those places have been remarkably good at saving lives and preventing deaths. Uh, I remember the stats from Insight were always like that, opening a safe injection site just save lives because they have people trained to uh, administer naloxone and reverse an overdose. So uh, sad to see that 
that chain has been broken, but at least it's still only one death at an overdose prevention site. Uh, and they also explicitly say analysis of postmortem toxicology results show that no indication that prescribed safe supply is contributing to illicit drug deaths regionally or provincially. Now, BC has a small safe supply program that allows people who are heavy drug users to get prescribed. Uh, generally, I think it's alternatives. It's not they're not generally prescribing directly cocaine, for example, but um, similar things that are prepared. Um, but those aren't contributing to the deaths. This is in direct contradiction to what Pierre Polyev is tweeting out, where he says flooding the streets with more heroin, fentanyl, and other drugs, drugs is killing people. So that's where we're at. I mean, I'm optimistic in many ways. I don't, but I think a lot of people correctly pointed out like this policy alone won't do it. Right. And I don't think anyone is strongly claiming that this is this is the one thing we needed to stop the overdose deaths. This is hopefully reduces some enough of the harm that more people can uh, be saved. But the thing that is killing people right now is that the drug supply is incredibly dangerous because it's laced with things people don't know what they're taking. And nothing in here fixes that. It just means that if you are holding drugs, you can feel a little more safer. And yeah, I don't think it was ever really intended to fix that either. Yeah. Like, this doesn't see it's not like a policy failure on the it's not gonna have the intended results. It's just the results intended are not necessarily the same as some people were wanting. It does point right to the need for a lot more to be done. And I think that's where Polyev in particular is trying to pick up on a thread and the BC Liberals, and we'll talk about them in a minute because I think there's, their stuff is a lot more interesting than what Polyev is talking about. Polyev is like, let's go all in on recovery and let's just throw out the, oh, he calls it like the woke agenda of the Liberal NDP alliance, which is exhausting. It's going to be an exhausting few years of federal politics. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll talk Poland later, but. Uh... Right now, it's looking like he's going to win the next election if it was held tomorrow. So it could be a lot longer than just a couple of years. Oh my god! Polyev basically wants to roll this back instantly. He hasn't said it definitively, I don't think, but he points to this and some of the safe supply things as not being effective, um, and instead points to like the Alberta model, where uh, you focus on. A lot of private recovery and treatment programs, which can be important, and we'll talk about them in depth with the BC Liberals, but also leans more heavily on law enforcement and punitive measures, and that's where we're at. And I get that we're all frustrated. No one's happy with the status quo because a lot of people are dying, uh, too many people are on the streets, and nothing seems to be changing but something big did change this week at least but like like we both said it's not gonna not gonna directly save lives but at least you know it's made us the uh target for all the far-right media across north america to fearmonger about as we are now the uh drug utopia or whatever or dystopia i guess in their minds Let's talk about the BC Liberals. Kevin Falcon has something of substance out. Their mental health and addictions plan. What did you make of this, Scott? They rolled it out on the day of decriminalization. Top level. The most interesting thing is that this is kind of where they're putting their effort in um, on it. I was expecting the BC Liberals to focus a lot more on kind of like the basic, you know, bread and butter economy stuff. And them doing a big push like this, I think, indicates they're maybe going to be adding a different track to things going forward. Um, overall, it seems a decent plan. So there's a they want to eliminate fees for public treatment bed, which 
yeah, solid. Like, why are there fees on the public beds in the first place? Imagine beating the NDP on the left on that point. Like, Christ. That's, that's yeah, that's a low-hanging fruit. Yeah. And um, they and then put a guarantee of access with basically a, then providing uh, funding for private beds if the public ones are also seems like a solid plan there uh, to base stuff off of. There doesn't seem to be anything problematic in here too much, uh, and mostly a bunch of fairly reasonable policy proposals. Yeah, the funding for private beds could be critiqued on the like pure public health care approach but like we but, also but we also use already... a lot of private providers for just a bunch of services from like gps up through stuff so and we already provide funding to private recovery facilities because the whole system uh, is largely unregulated and free to just like start recovery homes and societies which is not addressed in here. There's no stand. There are data, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, there's a focus on building regional recovery communities. I think one of these would be the new Riverview facility, the Redfish Healing Center uh, out here in Coquitlam. There would be, I like this one actually, the Virtual Opioid Dependency Program to ensure access to Suboxone and Methadone. Those are some of the, they're not quite safe supply, but they're good alternatives for people who are addicted to certain substances. And I know a lot of people struggle to get those prescriptions or to get access to those because they have to go to certain pharmacies. And even then, it's a hassle. And providing that as an alternative, again, easy stuff, or maybe not easy, but at least it feels like low-hanging fruit that should be done. Um, on the compassionate care for complex mental health needs, I think the most controversial in here is the quote-unquote compassionate involuntary treatment for quote, most vulnerable youth and adults at risk of harm to themselves or others. This is the idea of deeming someone needing uh, involuntary treatment. And we have, you know, the entire debate over when the NDP proposed that for youth and back down and now it's unclear if they're moving forward on that or not. Some articles are suggesting EB is kind of backing down from it, but in other cases, he said he's still interested in that path. The data does not generally support involuntary treatment being effective. So I don't know why we keep talking about this other than just some people feel like we really need to lock up drug users. Well, like part of the language here is for people at risk of harm to themselves or others. And you know, when someone is at the point where they are not just risking their own health and safety, but but others, there becomes a duty to intervene at that point, I think. This plan also talks about, and this one I found interesting, they say they endorse the homelessness plan put forward by Dr. Julian Summers from June of 2021. Uh, and I dug this up. It's a SFU report that was uh, endorsed by the Canadian Mental Health Association, the John Howard Society, the Union Gospel Mission, Health Justice, and other organizations, groups that I generally respect, um, that focused on recovery-oriented housing. It's just always weird to me when a specific expert gets flagged out like that, and I get curious about who this is. I found one editorial from Dr. Summers from 2021 that he talks about the importance of tackling uh, homelessness and addiction and that we need to build back better. This is early January 2021 when the idea of building back better was still a thing people had. Uh, buried in there, he's a little bit critical of just going to safe supply. He said, no amount of safe supply will provide a life worth living, which like no one disagrees with, but it also doesn't recognize the issue of the toxic drug supply in his editorial. And I think that's one of the criticisms people had of this plan is that none of it, again, addresses the fact that the people who are using drugs, or even the first time, don't know if what they're getting is what they think they will. And so your first use could be your last use. Well, I think both is important. Like a lot of kind of the discourse of in the last couple of years, particularly from um, 
advocates has really, really focused on the safe supply, and it is worth uh, seriously thinking about the point that he raises around um, that there also needs to be a path to recovery, and just persisting uh, in a ditch without kind of having that option available or or path out is not particularly great either. So a little rebalancing isn't uh, the worst thing. We haven't gotten any safe supply, or we've gotten like trivial amounts of safe supply. And this NDP government has talked endlessly about recovery. So we have never stopped talking about treatment and recovery, and no one has downplayed the importance of it. I just always see when this attempts to be rebalanced, it's like presuming we've done a thing that we haven't actually done much, if at all. And the point of it is like the first level of harm reduction of like, let's stop people from dying from overdoses because they're not taking things that will kill them. Because a lot of these substances, drug users will use regularly without dying. But then in the current era, it's just not the same drugs, straight up. It's like half car fentanyl or things that are being mixed in many different ways. So, and that one's hard to get across because no one likes the idea, or at least there's not a broad public support in the same way for giving out drugs or even doing wide-scale drug testing in a way that would help people ensure that what they're taking is safe. Um, Politically, I, I would suspect that the testing aspect would be a lot easier to handle than supply, particularly if it comes with the government covering the cost of providing those drugs. Uh, and the last thing here in the BC Liberal plan is awareness and prevention. They want public education campaigns for youth about addiction and recovery and workplace campaigns, support to help people navigate the recovery system. Hard to argue against those as long as we're not doing dare anymore. Like let's, let's move past the, tacky war on drugs nonsense from the 90s and be a little bit more up to date but otherwise whatever and a detailed data system to track province-wide performance measures and targets and clearly benchmark the number of publicly funded mental health and addiction treatment beds available to british columbians i love me some data i love me performance outcomes and standardized care but nothing in here says anything about making sure the treatment beds actually work like that people who undergo tr go through treatment actually come out treated that's something that's largely missing in the entire recovery field because it's run by a lot of there's a lot of religious quacks involved in it i'm just going to say and a lot of it is just abstinence obsessed without real focus on uh science and evidence so if it's just like hey look we have this many beds available that's not as meaningful to me as some other performance measures, but maybe I'm being overly critical here. And to be fair, I'm also critical of the current government's performance measures. But yeah, you're right off the top that it's fascinating to see this as their first major discussion point. Like I get the timing with it, to time it with the decriminalization announcement. It works with that. Um, and this is a pretty high profile issue that people we saw in some of Mario Canseco's polling around the municipal elections that people do care about drug overdose deaths and the issues surrounding that. So there's stuff in here that I'm glad to see is a consensus in the province, or at least that hopefully the liberals can push the NDP on. Uh, and there's just a lot more to be done. Of course, it'll be hard to push the NDP if David Eby loses his seat in the recall initiative that launched early in January uh, that we're just bringing up now because there's a second recall initiative against a BC Liberal as well. And so I thought we'd talk about them both just because recall initiatives in this province are usually dumb, but these ones are particularly dumb. I, I'm trying to think of the... Uh, no, actually, no, we did look this up. There was one non-dumb one, um, but that ended up with the guy resigning before anything could have happened. Uh, but yeah. These ones are also 
kind of done. So uh, I believe it was the week Ashley Stewart filled in for you uh, where we talked about the recall petition. But you also pulled up a little uh, bit more about uh, the EB recall. On yeah. There. So the important context to remember is a successful recall petition would require 40% of the eligible voters in a riding to sign the petition. In Vancouver Point Grey, David Eby's riding, this would mean 16,449 people. And for reference, David Eby himself got 12,602 votes in 2020, while the Liberals got 7,700 and the Greens 4,200. So there are that many people out there who didn't vote for David Eby because most many of them just didn't vote in 2020. But getting that many signatures out is just a wildly difficult uh, challenge. It's not going to happen. But what I didn't realize is the application for recall petition you submit to Elections BC includes a second page, just like statement from the petitioner. And so the petitioner for the Point Grey recall is Salvatore Vetro Caro Vrick Dignard of Maple Ridge. And I'm not clear here if uh, Mr. Dignard is a lawyer based out of Maple Ridge and Salvatore Vetro is in Point Grey, or if they're just both in Point Grey, or sorry, if they're both in Maple Ridge. In any case, uh, his petition statement starts with the amazing first sentence, Bill 36 breaks many existing laws, including the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the International Nuremberg Code. Always a great sign when someone's name dropping Nuremberg. <laughs> it violates maritime law. <laughs> The Admiralty Court is going to be real pissed when they hear about that. Uh, they complain that it's had very little debate and no constituency town hall meetings whatsoever. Uh, in bold, it said, this is not a leader, this is a dictator. It calls for the bill to be repealed. It says healthcare is in crisis. Like, random words are capitalized in this. Um, but this is the better written one of the two we'll discuss. And then it's alleging that we're going to see a mass exodus of high-quality healthcare practitioners fleeing our province. In this scenario, we all lose. Keep politics out of healthcare. David Eby must be recalled. So that's the attempt they're going after. Uh, there have been some allegations on Twitter this past week that the recall petitioners, and they actually have a website and some like caricature drawings of David Eby. And they're saying he's not my doctor. Did anyone um, think he was? Yeah, it's weird. Um, but this one account, Brad Barrett, who tweets about BC Poly, says he had a canvasser coming saying, I'm a canvasser with Elections BC, just seeing if you'd like to sign a petition to recall David Eby, um, which is a straight up violations of the Elections Act. Yeah, Elections BC up. does not send people out. To do this, any canvasser is from a campaign, and you have and to it's identify yourself. To impersonate elections yeah. BC, which is yeah. the important fact. Now, this is an allegation on Twitter. Maybe he made it up, but there was at least one other person posting another tweet in our thread, um, in our Slack, making similar allegations. So, if that's true, it's going to get very fun to watch them self-implode as they apparently try to lie their way into getting David Eby recalled. Um, even more fun is the next recall is up in Peace River North, where the NDP came in third by a long distance. Uh, conservative candidate Trevor Boland got 4,150 votes, the NDP got 1,202, and successful MLA for the BC Liberals Dan Davies got 6,746 votes. Now in this riding, the petitioners will need 10,487 signatures to recall Dan Davies. Uh, also probably not going to happen. No, very much not. This one, I think I just have to read the whole statement, which is by uh, Joseph Bell of Cecil Lake. MLA Dan Davies often failed to notify constituents, capital C, uh, of important and relevant information in a timely manner through media emails or community meetings. E media emails and community meetings are all capitalized there. I'm not going to give you all the capitalization from here on. When invited to such meetings to answer questions or give clarity was visibly absent or provided any follow-up. That's verbatim. Yeah, there's some subjects missing in that sentence. Matters included pending legislation, upcoming bills put in front of BC legislature, including but not limited to the Infants Act, 
Bill 36, UNDRIP School Curriculum, Reduction of Healthcare Workers and Services. Now, you and I follow BC politics pretty closely, and I've looked at the list of bills a couple times. I don't know what the Infants Act is. I know the DRIPA Act, fine. It's not un- fine. I don't know what school curriculum thing he's talking about. The curriculum hasn't changed since the BC Liberals changed it. Um, and uh, the BC NDP, to my knowledge, has not mandated the reduction of healthcare workers. Oh, no, that's about vaccines. Oh, I just clued in. Yeah, it's change- It's altering some of the requirements around who has to give consent for vaccines to children. But that wasn't legislation. <laughs> Continuing, when approached individually by constituents or small groups, again, no follow-up or a form letter was used. Yeah, no wonder he didn't reply to you. You're nuts. His choosing to ignore their concerns in such matters often allowed the passing of or changes to legislation detrimental to the constituents in his writing, therefore allowing them to have no input. Dude, Dan Davies is in the opposition. He wasn't going to have a strong voice on any of these issues. Like, maybe... In the theoretical world, the majority government would listen to the guy from Peace River North, but it's wild. Anyway, uh, others have found that this guy and the people pushing this petition are connected to a separatist group. Of course. So they're just... uh, Oh, and they're also all about how trans people are trying to groom children. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Anyway... Yeah, Peace River North is quite quite the place. So, uh, good luck to MLAs David Eby and Dan Davies at staving off your detractors <laughs> and those who would see you recalled. I have a feeling, good luck or no, that both of them will probably be fine. Well, let's turn to federal politics for... Honestly, most of the rest of the show, except for one thing we want to talk about in Ontario, but we want to take a minute and look at Abacus Data's latest poll because buried in there are some interesting questions around issues and what people are paying attention to. But I mean, the top line numbers are also not good for Justin Trudeau. No, they really aren't. So most notably, the you know, headline is 37% of people would vote conservative to 29 liberal. This is a trend that, you know, the conservatives have been ahead in the popular vote of the liberals in the last two elections and in most polls, at least that Abacus has for quite a while. It bounced it's, back and forth in the 2022. But yeah, they're trending apart in yeah, a way no that hasn't happened for a while. gap between them. Uh, so based on the, you know, if elections was held tomorrow, how would you vote question? Conservatives would be getting 37 to the Liberals, 29. The NDP is sitting at 18%, which they've been at plus or minus 1% since uh, June, early June of 2022. Uh, the Bloc is at 7% and the Greens exist. In theory. Neither which has really changed since the last election. Yeah, they both just kind of float. I mean, there was uh, the question is like, just how badly would the Greens implode? But most notably, lost in, ground. As well, regionally in this poll, the Conservatives are ahead in BC by 10 points over the NDP, uh, ahead, obviously, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and they're ahead by two points in Ontario. Uh, they're only at 22% in Quebec and at 37% in Atlantic Canada to 43% for the Liberals. That's The Liberals' stronghold is Atlantic Canada, and that's about it. Right. Um, the, the Ontario numbers in particular are noteworthy to me because 37% gets to be the case where a lot of the very narrowly won Liberal seats flip at that point. And that starts making uh, <clears throat> things very interesting and potentially leads to a conservative victory and or, well, I guess, or even up to the point of uh, potentially a majority if they didn't eke out like another point or so on that. I think what's more interesting than just the horse race stuff in this is you're seeing in this poll that Polyev is more liked than Aaron O'Toole was, probably because his base actually likes him. Uh, 
and not as hated as Aaron O'Toole, which is actually surprising to me. Uh, Jugmeet Singh's negatives are actually at a new high as his popularity is also at a low, except among the NDP, who NDP supporters give Jugmeet Singh a plus 84, which is a wild amount of support. Like Pierre Polyev is only plus 70. Uh, Justin Trudeau is plus 75 among liberals. Man, who are the conservative? Oh, I, yeah. I was like, who are the conservative supporters who don't like Polyev? But they're the uh, ones who like vaccines, who are fewer and fewer these days. But what's really interesting about this poll is they asked a various questions around, and this was the first time that Abacus has done this. What do you think the government is focused too much on, the right amount on, or not enough on among various issues? And then they also break that down by uh, liberal and conservative supporters and likely voters. And Canadians think the government should be paying more attention to the rising cost of living by a lot, 72%. Only 4% say the government's spending too much time on that. Uh, similarly, 70% say the cost of housing needs more attention. 66% say healthcare and the problems therewith. 52% say we should spend more focus on growing the economy and reducing the deficit. 50% on improving delivery of government services and crime and safety. All of these have 5 or 6% people saying we're spending too much attention on those. Cost of and living like, was, and housing is down at 4%. Mm -hmm. And when, you look, when we get to the uh, accessible voters for the Liberals, the cost of housing drops to 2%. I think they're doing too much on it. Which, I mean, at that point, the are lizards running, at secretly running the world, I think, polls better than the Liberals are on that. <laughs> The only issues that among all Canadians, people lean slightly to focusing too much, but really are mostly they're focused enough at is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 46% say the government's focused enough on that, but 23% say too much to 17% not enough. Uh, I think that's just Canadians don't care about international issues. Yeah, foreign policy is always a tough one to get Canadians to, to really focus on. If you'd asked this nine months ago, I would probably guess that would be a little different. But yeah, just also worn on a, a way, uh, enough now that you're probably getting the uh, a little bit of fatigue with some voters on that too. And apparently the liberals have perfectly balanced their work on indigenous reconciliation as 37% say just the right focus and 26% say too much and 27% say not enough. So they have walked that balance perfectly. Uh, slightly more people say they should reduce racism and equality than uh, say they should do less on it, but 37% the plurality say they've spent enough. Slightly more say they should spend more effort on climate change, 34% to 25% who say they're doing too much and 31% enough. Uh, gun crime, 38% say they should do more to reduce it, 34% say they're doing the right amount, and 17% say they're doing too much. I, that's one of those ones where the way it's phrased, like, do you think they should be doing less to prevent gun crime? Well, they should be doing I am, different stuff at the very yeah, least. I am pro gun crime, actually. <laughs> well, like, yeah. I mean, the ideas they have had on that have been pretty consistently terrible for the last uh, several years on it. But yeah, it doesn't easily break down into the focus too much versus just like coming up with ideas that actually have some connection to the alleged outcome they're trying to get. Yeah. And the last issue on there is the threat posed by China. 41% say they should focus more on that, 8% less, and 30% say they found the right balance. Uh, and that one goes up for the conservatives and goes down for the liberals. Liberal supporters generally. I uh, think the liberals have found the right balance on most things, except uh, cost of housing, rising cost of living, as you said, and problems with the healthcare system. But um, yeah, so li current liberal supporters hold those views. The, the yeah. thing that ought to concern the liberals is when the accessible voters are looked at, those numbers get worse. So take housing. 52% of liberal supporters think the government isn't doing enough, but when you bring that 
to the accessible voter pool, that jumps to 73%. And the people who think their vote is too much is as low as 2%. That's just an issue that they are very vulnerable on. And if you. Well, and it's quite prominent as the BC Premier David Eby and Cabinet were in Ottawa this week. And one of the issues they were raising is where's the government on housing? Where's the federal government on housing? Like you've talked about a few things you want to do, but where is the hard money that you've been talking about spending? Yeah. And like what really strikes me about all of this stuff is the things that the Liberals are falling down on and the public doesn't think they're doing enough on. They're all like the bread and butter issues. They're the can I afford uh, stuff? The will I be able to have a roof over my head? The if I get sick, will the healthcare system actually be there? And will the economy keep growing? And will we be prosperous? All of those stuff that the liberals are not doing well on. It's when it gets to be like the more abstract value stuff they generally are doing a bit better on. But like when it comes down to it during an election like that's not necessarily the balance if you want to have if you're trying to get reelected yep uh they also broke down uh what people think the conservatives would do if they were in power and unsurprisingly they think they would focus a lot more on reducing the deficit growing the economy uh they'd focus on the rising cost of living and the cost of housing in significant amounts more crime and safety 34% of all Canadians say the Conservatives would focus more than the Liberals on problems with the healthcare system, though, which is probably the most standout one yeah, of these. Particularly when compared to the less focused than the Liberals, at which that's 23%. So like, they, yeah. so, like, they have a pretty decent gap there compared to the Liberals, which is not something you usually find. I guess people are just looking at the healthcare system and going, the liberals aren't doing anything, so doing something shows you're focused on it. I mean, maybe we'll all change our tune next week when the premier's summit uh, and meeting with the prime minister is officially underway and done. And I think we're supposed to get some announcement around healthcare funding, but without having anything on the table yet, it does look like they've just all been pointing the finger at each other, and no one's been solving the. Uh, acute problems in our acute care system. <laughs> it's a mess. Yeah, so this is good news for the Conservatives, bad news for the Liberals. Uh, probably the best news for the Liberals in here is that the desire for change is about the same as it's been since 2019 with, you know, only half of people unhappy with the current state of things and 14 to 16% of people who are definitely happy with the Liberals being in a minority position. But a lot of trend lines are not good here for the Liberals. Time to do something. Luckily, they have a throne speech. Oh, no, they don't do throne speeches. They don't end sessions except when it's convenient for them the one time. Uh, but they have a budget coming up someday. And maybe they can do something with that. Well, I'll jump into quick takes. Uh, reporting out from the Globe and Mail earlier this week, uh, they dropped a bit of a bombshell report about uh, Canadian universities conducting joint research with Chinese military scientists from the Chinese National University of Defense Technology. Uh, in the report, they detail how uh, academics at most of Canada's top universities have published over 240 joint papers on a range of issues of uh, research areas, including ones related to uh, cryptography, uh, advanced robotics, and hypersonics. So things with direct military utility. Maybe? Like... I mean, hypersonics is, like, that's missile technology. Like, you, it's hard to have that be a research area that isn't going to have direct military applications. Like, it is and it also like without seeing the specific studies it could be anything within a broad range from like like hypersonic fluids and propulsion is something that i touched on a little bit in physics in some of my physics 
like undergrad stuff but you know just go on yeah it, it is also the university of defense technology like it's kind of in the name and what the their main focus is on that um so this is a bit of back and forth finger pointing between universities and CSIS and other national security agencies on this uh basically the universities are saying unless you like directly tell us we shouldn't do this we're going to just kind of keep going ahead and CSIS has some limits on what they're actually allowed to share under uh the under the current laws that enable them uh and they're basically saying come on guys it like use a little common sense here on uh what things are potential applications of a a military and security nature and don't necessarily be helping the chinese military with those so this report out of the globe and mail focuses on the past five years uh 240 papers the guidelines ideally restricting NSERC grants only came in in 2021. So they do highlight a few that have, well, that none of the top 10 universities have changed their policies in the last or stopped collaborating in the last year, I think. Um, yeah, the government it, it has does mention that uh, many of them are more or less continued uh, as before. Uh, the government has said they're going to bring in more clear guidelines. I like this piece that I found. It's from December 29th, which is a terrible day to drop an editorial uh, in uh, policy options from Suprina Sekon, who's uh, the director of corporate development with Invest Alberta. But uh, she writes about this challenge for universities of, you know, how do they fund research? And Right now, it, a lot of it is done through collaboration, either with private sector or with, in some cases, foreign institutions, because they have money and their states are funding. And it's, our government isn't putting significantly more money into fundamental research. Supervisors are going to look for options to partner wherever they can. And China also has a lot of expertise that we don't. And so there's always going to be that temptation to partner with universities and academics. And that's part of like the point of science is not to restrict it geographically, but to work around the globe. And obviously, I'm not saying every research project with a Chinese university is valuable or good, but saying they're all bad is also wrong, which I'm not saying you're saying, obviously. Yeah, like I, uh, I think there's... A... So the clear thing here is like, between the lack of funding creates an incentive for these kind of problematic partnerships to happen. Uh, and the other thing uh, she just highlights quickly is also that we've become dependent on international students because we milk them for money. And maybe if we stop doing that, you know, changing the fee structure so that universities and public schools, but that's not raised in here, uh, don't have to uh, get a significant chunk of revenue off international student tuition, we could reshape the nature of these partnerships a lot more than guidelines from the security establishment. Yeah, more funding would definitely be good and helpful on this, um, as would the yeah clearer guidelines and universities using a little more... Uh, discretion when making decisions even absent those guidelines so a lot, lot of room to improve all around another area where there's room to improve is how parliament is functioning as in its hybrid form the procedures committee proc has just dropped its big report following a long study of how the hybrid system has been going this system was introduced early on in the pandemic to facilitate mps not being in the house it includes an electronic voting system and it's been controversial since a few months in at least and increasingly controversial in the past year or two as the conservatives and now the bloc as well are really pushing for a return to 
the traditional model of parliamentary sittings. Now, the Liberal and NDP, which hold a majority on this committee, have decided, nah, hybrid's great. Let's keep doing it. And have recommended that through their committee report now. To yeah, be fair so, to the... Go so, ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, there's... Yeah, I think this is going to be one of those things that's just going to persist until there's a change in government. And then when there is, we'll likely cycle back to something cl more closely approximating uh, the traditional model with maybe a few things still sticking around. Like there's a partisan debate angle here, but there are, I think, fundamentally good arguments on both sides of the debate. Like the traditional model has a lot of advantages that is laid out in the dissenting reports from the conservatives on the block around the ability of MPs to uh, see one another in debates, to have those informal discussions behind the scenes. Uh, it's easier to participate. Uh, well, the hybrid defenders can point out that getting from some of the remote parts of this country to Ottawa is very difficult, especially for us out here in British Columbia. And so, like, it takes multiple flights to get from Victoria to Ottawa, from one capital to another. I you have to change planes twice. They they were doing direct flights at one point, so. But, like, there's one plane a day, I think. Yeah, and so it's a very frustrating kind of situation. I totally get why it's reasonable to consider a hybrid structure. I What I found interesting in this report is one thing that came up as a serious issue, and it sounds like it is, is there have been a stark increase in the number of workplace injuries for uh, the simultaneous interpreters who work on who work for parliament and these are the people who listen to one mp speak in french and they have to read something out and read it back in english as they go and vice versa and what's happening is because people at home don't know how to use their mics uh, unless, unlike us professional podcasters, uh, sorry to our editor, as I know I bumped my mic like six times already. This is causing workplace injuries, uh, specifically acoustic shock injuries, and people have had to miss a lot of work as they're uh, getting tinnitus, headaches, earaches, and various other levels of minor and serious discomforts from listening to all of this like feedback loops and all of this going on. The main report has some recommendations to try to improve the system for them, but the conservatives and bloc both say, that's not enough. We need to save our interpreters' ears by ending hybrid sittings. A little bit of that's probably a bit opportunistic, but yeah, that clearly there needs to be some rethinking going around on how Parliament handles this because Interpreters should not be the type of profession that has a lot of workplace injuries. And if that is happening, that's a problem. I mean, I mean no, ideally, no, no profession no should, but like, yeah. there are professions where if there's a workplace injury, you can understand that that's a risk that comes with the job. And then there are professions where you go, huh? When you hear about a, a yeah. bunch of workplace injuries. So, so your job is to uh, sit and listen to politicians speak all day. And like the immediate injuries that come to mind are all jokes of like uh, suffering from long windedness and that kind of stuff. Not they're bad at using their mics. So it's going to like physically damage my ears. Yeah. We're, we're not talking like, yeah, it's not like the, you know, underwater weld welders or something, which is a danger, a much more dangerous job. It's, yeah, listening to politicians talk, and that should be the sort of thing that we can have a, a very safe workplace for. Um, what one circling back a bit? Um, yeah, I do generally find the uh, the points raised by the we want to go back to the more traditional model fairly persuasive. That there is something to be said for just the that in person you just get a more fulsome interaction, more you have the chance to talk with people in person and hold the government to account more. That's something that was notable in this, that uh, the liberal NDP group basically just said, yeah, we think it should be best practice for ministers to 
appear in person when they're here to answer questions from the house. But like, they're not going to make it a requirement or anything. And the opposition parties were pretty clear, like, no, you actually should have to come into Parliament to respond to questions. And yeah, it, it I think there's something to that because it question period becomes a lot less impactful when, oh, I'm just going to read a prepared script over a a Zoom call. And it just doesn't have the same impact that, you know, of having to defend oneself in, in a full house does. Granted that uh, very few governments in recent memory have fallen because of a pithy exchange in a question period. That is true, but like it is um, also the thing that like a problem of in person is online. But also, like it is one of the main ways that opposition parties turn up the heat on governments and actually put pressure on them, and weakening that does weaken the mechanisms by which opposition parties do the important work of holding governments to account. Uh, to be clear, the neither Green MP, to my knowledge, was on the committee, so we don't have the official position of the Green Party of Canada on this report or the dissents. I believe the Greens supported the interim motions to continue having hybrid sittings, but you know maybe they've been brought around if they only viewed that as temporary. Um, worth asking if your MP is Elizabeth May or the other guy. My apologies to the MP for Kitchener, whose name I'm drawing a blank on right now. But speaking of Greens, the Ontario Greens are in the news as the Ontario leader, as the as the Ontario Liberals are trying to search for a new leader, and they've decided no one in their party is good enough, and a number of prominent MPPs and former MPPs have written a letter begging the leader of the fourth party, the Ontario Greens, to run for the leader for their leadership. The, this the is, Liberals are the third party, at least. This but. is just so embarrassing for everyone involved. They're not even like fringe MPPs, like a couple are... Well, there's past. eight of them. Like, it's hard to be... You only have so much you can kind of be fringe in a group like that. The story only got better, though, when Green leader Mike Schreiner said, well, I'm going to think it over and like take some time to do it seriously. And it's like, what? Are you not serious about the job you have? Um, well, I mean, it's credit the, the most attention the Ontario Greens have gotten in a while. Like, if you're Schreiner, like, why not milk? the media cycle a little bit, have the will-he-won't-he thing going before probably ultimately deciding, no, of course not. I think he said he has been approached by people in the Liberals and the NDP, but I, at least just to my knowledge, no Liberal or no NDP MPPs are saying our leader should be from another party. Uh, Elizabeth May, to her credit, was asked about this, and as co-leader of the Federal Greens, she said... She thinks the leader of the Green Party of Ontario should be focused on the Green Party of Ontario. And what did the other co-leader say? Uh, he was not quoted. Yeah, as because nobody cares if you're co-leader with Elizabeth May um, on that. Uh, anyway, we we could we've covered up an hour. We could probably spend like another hour just like poking fun at the Ontario Liberals for this. It's just a, a bizarre thing for a party to do, and particularly basically saying we have no idea and we don't think any of the potential people from our own party, a party that with that five years ago was running the province, have any useful ideas on it is just a pretty sad commentary on the state of things there. Um, but yeah, the latest curse of politics and the strategists both devote a large chunk of their uh, respective podcasts to this farce. Uh, so I'd recommend uh, going to check those out. 
it'll be funny if he does it. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny even if he doesn't, because what the hell were those people thinking? And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.